Many are saying of my soul, no salvation, no rescue. He echoes 2 Samuel 15, 12 when it says, and the, cons- the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. There were many that were increasing against David. There are several things happening here. If you try to get into the mind of David, what would you be thinking after you have been dislodged from the kingdom? You're fleeing for your life. You're running. And as I sat here and meditated on this, I would probably be thinking, sin has consequences. Nathan said the sword would not depart out of my home because of what I did with Bathsheba. But at the same time, David has incredible hope in God. He doesn't accept the accusation. He doesn't accept the line of the critics that there's no salvation. A matter of fact, in light of the critics' condemnation, what does David say? Yahweh, help! Perhaps he started to believe the accusations himself. You know, if you listen to the relentless vocal minority or even vocal majority long enough, you can actually believe their criticisms. Isn't this what bullying is? Isn't this why even cyberbullying leads some to take their own life? Because they actually start to believe the line of the critics. And that is the disastrous effect of bullying, whether it be physical, mental, or spiritual. Here's what the critics are saying, verse 2. Many, there's that word, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation, there's no help, there's no refuge for him in God. And that's what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe there's no help for you in the Lord because you sinned so great or because you've sinned so often. Or because what you did was never heard of before in a land like this. Because of your position, you failed. Because you've exchanged a palace for a wilderness. And Satan wants to come in and he wants to use, yes, other human beings. But behind it is the dark criticism of Satan that there is no hope for you. And as we move into our first Selah, I want us to meditate on this truth. The guilt of sin, criticisms, and actions of others and unexpected difficult circumstances may lead you to believe God has abandoned you, but there's more to your story. verse 3. This is a prayer of confidence in the Lord. But you, O Lord, 
are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he what? He he answered me from his holy hill. Do you know God is not like the many of verses 1 and 2? God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God does not bring an accusation against you. As a matter of fact, he sent his son even when you were a sinner, even when you were his enemy, and he sent his son so you did not have to die. David's confidence rested in the nature of God described here by a metaphor, a shield. This is beautiful. David, barefoot, ashes on his head, leaving his home away from his son. And he says, God, you're my shield. Not the palace walls, not my soldiers. God, I'm going to cast my confidence in you who answers and in you who totally encompasses me about. You are my shield. You are my defense. God said this to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. He said, I am your shield. And now David claims that very idea, that very picture, that truth, centuries later. This is what David's doing. Many oppose me. Many plot evil against me. And yet I am underneath the great king's protection. Look at verse 3. You are my glory. David's glory is not in his own name. His kingdom, his palace, or his power. Now, through humility and brokenness, David cries out a truth. You are my glory. And then he uses this Hebraism that expresses confidence in the Lord. Verse 3, and the lifter of my head. It really has echoes of 1 Samuel 2, 7-8, where Scripture says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. Right? He lifts up their head. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them He has set the world. So Absalom may dislodge David as king, but no one can dislodge God from being king. We already saw that in Psalm 2, didn't we? The nations rage and they plot against the Lord and against His anointed. And what is God's response? He, he laughs. How empty. How futile. I've already chosen my king. It's not open for debate. It's not open to, for contest. This is my king. He is my son. My begotten one. And as David goes out in brokenness and in humility, he cries out to God, You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. You are my shield. And folks, whatever you are facing, you need to know this. God is in control. And God has orchestrated everything in your life because He cannot be dislodged as your Heavenly Father and your King. Tremper Longman III and David E. Garland commenting on this psalm wrote, Even in moments of great despair, when the soul feels abandoned by all others, Comfort may be drawn from the assurance that God answers. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. And then we reach our second Selah, and this is going to be our meditation. 
Our confidence is not in our knowledge of the future, in the absence of difficult circumstances or people, or in the might of our strength, but in God's character and promise. And I would add to that, and the reality that He will answer you when you call. Verse 5, you'll see the effects of David's confidence in the Lord and in the reality that he will answer. This is why it's called a morning psalm. Look at verse 5. I lay down and, what did he do? Slept. Have you ever not been able to sleep? I didn't typically have that problem until I had children and you lose sleep over certain infant and toddler problems, and then you lose sleep over junior high drama, and then you really lose sleep over teens becoming adults making their own decisions. David's situation is a lot more fierce, but it does involve a child. But look at his confidence in God. Look at verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. And this is his resolve. I mean, have you ever woken up, you either made a foolish decision or you're in a really difficult circumstance and you sleep so well and you wake up and within a few minutes, what rushes back to your mind? Your circumstances. And the dread or the fear or the anxiety. But he says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. There's that word again, many. I'm not going to be afraid of many Because I have called out to one. And David realizes he will either choose fear or faith. He will choose to trust or be afraid. And he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Two incredible truths. David said, I'm not going to be afraid. Another incredible truth. There really are many thousands of people who are against you. Another night has passed, David wakes up in the camp probably a day or two after his his escape from Jerusalem, and he's still alive, and life is a gift from God. Life means when you wake up, you still have an opportunity that day to please God, regardless of your yesterday, regardless of your last week, regardless of five years ago. You wake up, you have life because God has sustained you. There's still life to live for God's glory. You know, too often we seek for rest and comfort in our situation rather than in the Lord. What do I mean by that? Some of us are restless in our heart and we're fearful and we're waiting for our circumstances to change. 
That's not where God wants you to find rest and comfort. Because your circumstances may not change. And so often we react rather than cry out for the Lord's help. God is the difference between despair and hope, not your circumstances. God does not waste suffering. And if you find yourself in a similar Davidic situation, he will not waste the suffering you're experiencing. He's surrounded by enemies like a city under siege. Many thousands, verse 6. And David says, I will not be afraid. The Apostle Peter writes this, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does humility look like? Casting all your anxieties on him. It is the essence of pride to clutch your anxieties. It takes humility to cast them on the Lord. And why is that so important? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He cares for you, but your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In this context, it seems as though Satan can effectively devour you through uncasted anxieties. So you cry out to the Lord. And rather than make your plan, pray and depend on God and wait on the Lord. There is no Selah after the third stanza, so we're going to move right in. Look at verse 7. Now, verse 1, who's arisen against David? Many have risen against me. Interesting, note the contrast, verse 7, his prayer, Arise, O Lord. That is an appropriate response. When opposition mounts and floods and overwhelms and many are against you, you look to God and you say, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And there is a physical salvation here and I believe also a spiritual dynamic where you do have an enemy walking about seeking whom he may devour. And you say, Arise, O Lord, and save me. It's an interesting picture he gives. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David's comparing his enemies to to animals. Albert Barnes wrote this. The language seems to be taken from a comparison of his enemies with wild beasts. The cheekbone denotes the bone in which the teeth are placed. And to break that is to disarm the animal. Now, we had some very fierce-looking Rottweilers when we lived in Africa. And the nationals, they were afraid to come to our gate for the most part, except the ones that knew us. And they would call. I had a friend, a Zambian friend, who called our Rottweilers. um, He called them wannabe lions. Now, what if word got out, because the reason you have big dogs, we also had a bull mastiff and some other dogs, is for security in a very insecure area. But what if word got out on the street that my dogs were teethless, toothless, teethless, right? Would they be much of a threat? I mean, they still have that curb appeal, right? Big black, tan face, nice bark. But they're really harmless, aren't they? 
You know, if you came up and he's barking and you can see him, he's just, and he's, and, you know, what are you, oh, he's going to gum me to death. No, dogs don't gum people to death. And it's a beautiful picture of what David does. You strike all my enemies on the cheek right there. You break the teeth of the wicked. The teeth come out like beasts, like the beasts that they are. They are harmless, toothless and harmless. You see, David's critics had already concluded that God will not deliver him. Verse two, there is no salvation for him in God. David cries out, save me, O God. Verse seven, strike my enemies. Again, the comparison. Many rose against me. Now David prays, arise, Lord, arise against the many. In verse seven, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. Now, that seems harsh to those who have embraced a soft view of Yahweh, just like Psalm 2 was uncomfortable. Where this son, this begotten, this anointed Messiah is going to rule with a rod of iron and dash his enemies to pieces. Here, Yahweh strikes the enemies on the cheek and renders them toothless and harmless. So look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. Here's the final Selah. Here's the meditation. Enemies may surround. Evil may seem unstoppable. The wicked may appear to triumph. Trials may overwhelm. But God will rescue. God will bless his people. Yahweh is a glorious king who is close enough to hear and respond to your prayers. This is both true personally on a physical level as you cast your anxieties on him who cares. It's also true spiritually when you have a great dark enemy. And Romans says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in me will not be put to shame. See these similar concepts. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the critics are saying there's no salvation for you. There's no hope for you. Satan comes along and whispers the same thing. And Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God, says, everyone who believes in me will not be put to shame. I will save. I will bless. Look at the very last verse of Psalm 3, verse 8. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's who you call out to in simple childlike faith, believing, and He will save. Your blessings be on your people.